This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Welcome to uh, the Spring Coverly Lecture. I'm Deborah Stipek. I'm the Dean of the School of Education, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Um, I'm afraid, I, th I think many of you have heard this, but I, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm going to start with the bad news, which is that Linda Darling Hammond is not going to be with us um, this evening. She, it is not life-threatening, but she is very ill and has no voice whatsoever, um, which of course is a little difficult under, to, when you're being asked to make a presentation to a large audience. Um, but the good news is that Tony Alvarado is so incredible um, and has learned a lot from Linda, so I'm sure some of the things that... Uh, <laughs> The only problem is I was sort of ho hoping to get an argument going, and uh, I don't know. We'll have to, I'm going to have to count on the audience for doing that. So I'm really sorry about Linda not being here for her sake and for ours. Um, but I do want you to know that I don't think it's life-threatening. I think it's just a really, really bad flu and cold. Um, before we begin, I want to give you a little background on the Cubberly Lecture Series. The series was named after the School of Education's first dean, Elwood Cubberly, who was also a major benefactor to the school. The series was established to encourage discussion of current issues in education and has been in practice since 1933. So Tony, you're, you're part of a very long tradition. Um, now, our speaker this evening is so well known, he hardly needs an introduction. So I tried to find a few things that you might not already know about him. Tony Alvarado is the Olivier Nomellini Professor of Education. Delighted to be able to start with that. He grew up in the South Bronx and spoke only Spanish until kindergarten. He spent his summers with cousins on his grandparents' Long Island chicken farm. <laughs> Bet you didn't know that. That's true. Right? Tony attended Catholic schools and credits his training in the Jesu Jesuits' fierce intellectual tradition for his own discussion and decision-making style. He began his teaching career in a South Bronx junior high classroom and left for the district office four years later. He later became principal of a bilingual elementary school and then served as superintendent in East Harlem. His successes there in raising student performance and creating a national model of public school choice led to his appointment as the chancellor of the nation's largest school system, yes, New York City. He is perhaps best known for his accomplishments as superintendent of Manhattan District 2, which Harvard professor Richard Elmore uh, referred to as a virtual United Nations of diversity. He assembled a core group of administrators and teachers who re reorganized the structure of the district and the practices in the classroom. Ten years later, his team efforts had raised the student performance to the second of the 32 districts in New York City in both math and reading. Just prior to joining Stanford, Tony, as mo most of you know, served as Chancellor of Instruction for San Diego City Schools where he designed a comprehensive instructional improvement system and established the Education Leadership Development Academy, 
For his work, he received both the 1998 Superintendent of the Year Award and the prestigious Charles Dana Award for Pioneering Achievement in Education. These are just some of the reasons I refer to Tony as our rock star practitioner. I am delighted to finish this history by pointing out that he, has joined, he joined the Stanford faculty last fall and he helps to keep us grounded because as you all know, academics can spin into outer space and Tony reminds us what the real world of schooling is like and that we need to be relevant. So we're delighted. I don't know if you're going to use Linda's voice for some of your comments and your voice for others, or how are you going to do this, Tony? But um, we're really looking forward to hearing from you. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here this evening. And um, uh, if you had heard Linda at uh, 3.30 this afternoon, she was struggling with uh, uh, just trying to uh, let me know that she couldn't be here today. And so uh, um, I really hope that she can feel better and uh, get well soon. Um, part of our conversation, what, when we planned to talk here this evening, was around the topic of uh, uh, school leadership and its dichotomy from teaching and why that is the case and is that a problem and if it is a problem, uh, what can we do about it and what does good educational leadership look like uh, in places that are uh, successful? So this first question is, um, does a leader in an educational system need to know the subject matter, the work that that leader is trying to lead? Um, generally speaking, one would say as one looks at other sectors and in what, uh, one looks at other uh, hum uh, professions, one would say it does make sense. I mean, it would be difficult to have an orchestra leader who was selected for his or her leadership skills and then think that one should teach that person music. It would be, um, there's been a tradition, I guess, in, in the military that uh, goes way back to the establishment of military um, uh, training institutions to actually prevent politics from generating military leaders, and it was a recognition that, in fact, that military science needed to be incorporated in the development of military leadership. I remember just in passing, uh, um, the coach Red Arbach from the Boston uh, um, uh, Celtics, who was once asked early on why he became a basketball coach, and he said, well, I was asked to be a baseball coach, but I didn't know much about baseball. <laughs> and it is an interesting comment because it is difficult to conceive of a coach in sport who would not know the content of the sport that she or he were coaching. So on the face of it, one begins to wonder wouldn't that 
even if unnecessary, at least be useful to have a school leader, being a principal or a school superintendent, know something about the very thing that she or he was empowered and required to do, which is essentially to improve the quality of instruction in school systems. Um, there are some very negative things that accrue to the system when this doesn't happen. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, the gender bias that occurs in education occurs primarily because it is the women in education who know about curriculum, who know about assessment, who know about teaching, but in fact what people are selected for, kind of this brash leadership male uh, uh, viewed uh, uh, behavior, is what becomes the, the basis for selection. So you find women severely underrepresented in, edu in educational leadership roles. It's instructive perhaps in District 2 when we first arrived, about 87% of the principals were male. When we had set up the requirement of knowing instruction of being selected by being brought to a school uh, to make an analysis of instructional processes, to give res uh, recommendations for improvement, to sit in on faculty meetings and be able to pro uh, productively lead the faculty and make uh, some uh, uh, recommendations that would enhance the conversation around improvement. It was amazing how the men fell off the table. And indeed, if you look at some of the statistics, the statistics are that a significant percentage of men get selected to be uh, uh, leaders in education as a result of coming out of coaching in the, in the area of sport. So this is one kind of uh, uh, a result of not looking at it. Um, uh, the other question would be is, is it important in the, in the uh, actually before I get there, I should make this other observation, which is very good teachers, when one asks them about becoming leaders in education, always say no, because then I have to give up teaching. It is their perception that they are entering this world this managerial world that is disassociated from the practice of children's learning and from the practice of teachers' teaching. And that is such an important part of who they are that they don't want to leave it behind. The number of times when I have literally been on my knees begging teachers to enter aspiring leaders programs, teachers who were outstanding teachers and asking them to give it a try and that we would give them the supports that they'd need to succeed, and too often being unsuccessful in that pleading was a function of how, how deeply they felt that the leadership role was divorced from the role of teaching.
Um, the other thing that I think happens is uh, if we were to look at how leaders are selected, they are selected overwhelmingly through an interview process. And it makes no difference who you involve and, and how many tiers in the interview process we have. It is essentially people asking uh, would-be candidates how they would lead a school. There is little, if any, performance dimension to a candidate having to demonstrate that they are capable of supporting the improvement of teaching. And what we normally get is a, is a process where we get what we test for. Um, there is another interesting uh, phenomenon that is occurring now, which is the movement on, in the superintendent ranks to move toward a non-traditional superintendent in effect saying that the problem has nothing to do with instruction, with teaching, but rather the problem is primarily a generic problem of leadership. And that in fact, if we were to hire someone who was effective in a leadership role in another sector of the American economy, that those leadership skills what would be sufficient to move a system in terms of instructional uh, improvement. Um, uh, Linda is not here. On a number of occasions, we've actually uh, uh, had this sidebar conversation that there's probably enough evidence now to look at what those leaders who have com come from non-traditional sources and it is the military, business, a whole range of, of, of uh, sectors, and to see what has been the success, particularly in the turning around of urban school systems. Um, as you might gather from the, my, the way that I have phrased the problem, uh, I think it actually is, an, it is crucial in the leadership development and selection, uh, uh, and in the selection of leaders, to select people who know about the core work of instruction. Um, it strikes me that when leaders need to talk to teachers to be involved in the communal practice of improving teachers, the absence of deep knowledge, the absence of knowledge of the thinking that goes into teaching and that goes into its improvement would be problematic in the attempt to participate and to solve this core problem of American public education. Um, I would say also that we have a couple of forces driving us to stay away from uh, looking at the knowledge of teaching and learning as a core requirement for leadership. The sense that the, in the, na the narrow sense of accountability that's been generated by No Child Left Behind, 
that sees the improvement as just the identification of students who have a need to bring this to the, uh, uh, to the attention of people who aren't working because it would appear that if they were just, would work harder, that they already have the knowledge and skills necessary to solve the problem. And if we just squeezed the accountability uh, 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 tool on them, that we would then uh, uh, get uh, improved results. And of course, to do that squeezing, you don't need to know anything about instruction. That, that continued drive right now, its presence in American public education, continues to work against this rich sense of that leader work is essentially teaching work. And if one were to conceptualize leading as actually teaching on a larger scale, then one might see the teachers in, a class, who, in their classrooms as being the students in the organization and the role of the leader to harness the attention of and support the work of, the, of teachers around instructional improvement. This is about getting knowledge and skill and developing it around practice about what teachers actually do, because it is what teachers actually do that determine what students learn. So the, this, theory that this theory of action is that if we can support the improvement of teaching, we can, result, we can have a result of the improvement of student learning. Okay. So in my experience, Linda would have asked me, Tony, well, uh, uh, what did you do in District 2? How did you think about leadership work that resulted in the kind of, uh, of improvement that made some sense and uh, at least registered itself on the academic uh, 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 improvement literature? Um, and I would say that essentially we saw leaders um, as teachers and the work of leaders was working with teachers to improve instruction. And there were structures, and I'll go through a few of them, that made it look like this. Um, the superintendent would visit every single school, every single classroom a number of times during the year some schools that needed more work more than others. And we would walk the, class, the classrooms with the principal after having had a conversation with the principal about every classroom and what was the work that was going on in every classroom. And what, would we ex be ex what could we expect to see when we were there? Because there was a plan of learning for each of the teachers that they had co-constructed with the principal around how were, they, how were they gonna improve. And this walkthrough, and I, 
do this, meaning um, putting it in quotations, because that what was then conceived as a walkthrough has now become something else. It has become people who know nothing about instruction, walking in with checklists, checking things off, almost a reversion to 40 years worth of, of, of managerial uh, 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 development in, American, uh, in the history of American education, telling teachers what they haven't done and what they need to do, as opposed to seeing the walkthrough as an opportunity to talk through with the principal what we're seeing, why we're seeing what we're seeing, what the principal is working at, why the principal believes that what is going on can produce some work, uh, some uh, success, what is the evidence of that in the classrooms that we visit, and have a conversation about the work that the principal is having with teachers around instructional improvement. That is a very, very different professional development tool than is what tends to happen when the leader does not know instruction. Um, often, it was an interesting thing that we always asked principals to be in classrooms. We knew, both from the literature and from our own experience, that when principals went in, in classrooms, one of three things would happen, probably all of them in significant numbers. In some places, it would be terrific. And a principal would be happy to have been there would have been said that he forgot that this was where she or he should be, and began conversations with faculty that were highly productive. Then there were classrooms where principals walked in, and they were literally bulls in china shops, did not know what to do, and probably gored everything in sight. <laughs> they walked out the door, they went, and the teachers went and little happened and nothing in the future was to happen. Um, and then there were principals who just didn't know what to do. So there were principals who did something that was productive, those who did something that actually worked against the improvement of instruction, and then there were other principals who were neutral on the state of affairs. This, it would seem to me that it would be highly unlikely that we would get that result if the leader who was entering the classroom was an expert teacher. If that person knew what they were seeing, what they could talk about it, how they could talk about it, and work with groups to deal with, with, with that improvement. So that walkthrough, which is now uh, 
the supervisory walkthrough is now used in most systems, is a tool that either produces learning or can actually narrow down the instructional improvement processes a la NCLB. Another uh, 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 question is if, another issue is if we see the principal or the superintendent as a teacher, then those staff development meetings that occur at least once a month, either at the district level, amongst principals, or at school levels with a principal and teachers, that those would be conceived as classrooms where people learned and discussed and created an agenda around teaching in the school. As opposed to what we tend to see now when, if it is on a Monday afternoon, in the ether, you can hear the size of people sitting in staff meetings, going through administrivia, and waiting to get out, and the union person looking at the clock, knowing that in two minutes they can really lead the troops out of the meeting. This, these, the, the, the practices, the procedures, the way that we connect learning in schools and in districts is dependent upon an understanding of, of the content teacher-student triangle. And at least the capacity to have dialogue around that triangle in ways that can produce some learning. So what would happen if a principal uh, walked into a classroom and, what would a cl and how could that principal connect the learning in that room with the learning in other classrooms? Or what could a superintendent who was walking through different schools and seeing different teaching do to connect the learning in the larger system? Well, in no particular order, it might run something like this. I saw a part of your staff meeting, and you know, Bill, Marguerite runs spectacular staff meetings. I'd like to, you and Marguerite to buddy up and to spend the next three uh, 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 staff conference days, Marguerite working with you on your staff conferences and you with her. One might enter a, a classroom where uh, teachers in a school are working at finding, I don't know, just write books for students. So that in their independent reading, teachers are selecting books that challenge students, but are not beyond their comprehension level, but are not too easy for students, so that independent reading doesn't produce any additional learning on the part of students. So she walks into, let's not pick on Bill, she walks into Mary's school and finds that the students are just reading books. And when she goes to speak to students and say, what are you reading? 
tell me about what you're reading, the student can't tell you anything. Even though the student is halfway through the book that she's reading, that everybody has been so proud of because they've been charting the number of books read in the school because the totality of that will prove how much reading is improving in the school. But when you get up close at the reading, at the student's independent reading, you find that little is going on and not much, the students are accruing very little knowledge as a result of the process. So a possible connection. Knowing that is important. If you don't know that and you walk into the classroom, you begin to applaud like every unknowing visitor because every child has a book in front of them and it looks like we're really learning. But that, that, the validity of that observation is belied by knowing about what is going on in the classroom. And that then leads to Mary. Francis actually has been working on the selection of just right books for three years. It would be useful for us to have a conversation. And by the way, if as a superintendent you saw that in five other schools, it might be useful to make it a topic of the staff development or to create a study group of principals around that particular instructional topic so you could get to the heart of the matter. But the point that I'm trying to make is that it would be impossible for a leader to take that action if in fact the leader knew little about what teaching and learning is. Um, and on another level, what could, one could look at that as sharing best practice. And therefore, it, it, it is lifted to a generic strategy that is employed across sectors. That is true, but my argument still holds that the recognition of which strategies to use, what learning is required, how to go about scaffolding that learning in a way that you can get productive, productive system learning is a function of knowing teaching and learning well enough to be able to generate improvement. Um, it is interesting about how we prepare leaders now. And it, this is a very important time in public education. The recognition of the importance of leadership is now flying high on all radar screens. Um, we are, are going to have a national board for uh, licensure. We are going to, uh, we have new assessments that are coming out about around the work of leadership. 
if you look at a place like uh, uh, England, we now have the Na National College for school leadership set up originally as part of England's strategy for, for improvement, a place where leaders go with teachers. This, uh, it, is, it is imperative at this moment to recognize the importance of instruction for the development of leadership work nationally or we will continue to replicate what we have now, which is to get leaders who, in fact, are weak in the instructional dimension. It is also a dimension that is hard to learn to get to. Picture yourself trying to lead an organization in a sector about which you know nothing, even though you may be a skilled leader in your particular section. You, you don't know how to talk about it. You don't know when the measurement makes sense. You don't know what, the, what data is really important. You, do, you don't know how to get to levels of practice because you can't recognize what practice produces what student result. It is, it is a difficult imagining, and yet it is, it is a real fact. Now, I can say that people can argue that, in effect, part of the reason we should have non-traditional uh, uh, leaders is because, in fact, we have selected leaders from the education ranks before, and indeed assistant principals, principals and superintendents, essentially were once teachers. The question of, that I'm talking about is not about having been a teacher, but knowing a lot about teaching. Too often, those who are selected to be leaders, because what we're searching for is not good teachers, are very or have a very often been weak teachers. We then select weak teachers who mirror image very much so the leader who comes from a different sector because they know nothing, little about what they're doing. I find it interesting that when I do staff development with leaders who are coaches in sport and yet are leaders of schools or departments, that they understand the rules of coaching and the art and science of coaching really well. They've been doing it a long time and they're very successful they find it very difficult to apply the generic skills of improving performance in another sector, the, if one can label football a sector, uh, to the improvement of, teach, of mathematics teaching. Content matters.
We are learning that so much in teaching and what it means to improve teaching. The content matter of the subject is enormously important. The pedagogy that comes from the subject is very important in the improvement of instruction. This, this issue is, is, is a continuing problem in the selection of and the development of leadership. We have many leadership academies. Um, and Linda, I know, would have asked me. She would have said, Tony, because she did the research with, I think, Deborah and a batch of other folks who I've seen here today on ELDA, which was the Leadership Development Academy in San Diego. And as a matter of fact, she asked how, in fact, what was the work in San Diego about, the part of it around improving instruction? And my response to her would have been, it was about taping leaders in the role of leading instructional improvement and having leaders talk about whether that, whether in fact, they were able to improve instruction. When they saw themselves on tape and they would get over how they talked, how they looked, how they sounded, um, how they gesticulated, they, and they had to talk about what they said and how what they said resulted in someone being able to do something that they could not do before. It was a breathtaking and a, and a very, very difficult confrontation that they had. One which often produced tears, not from the questioning, but from the recognition that the improvement work didn't even remotely resemble anything that could result in improvement. When leaders look at improvement work, the first thing that in, in, or in systems that function around organizational learning is not to blame the teacher, it is to blame the instruction. So if in fact teachers are in high quality professional development or principals are in high quality professional development and that professional development tends not to improve the practice, the problem is with the professional development. It's not with the teacher. The person responsible for the professional development is often not the teacher, it is the leader. And therefore, it is looking into the mirror and finding that seeing Pogo and understanding that the problems here are not the problem. Were, are the problems of leadership, not the problems of teaching. What happens when you put instructional improvement in the equation is that the reciprocal accountability that Dick Elmore always noted in our work was essentially about this. It was about 
the leader being responsible to the teacher for what that teacher needed, including knowledge and skill, before one could ask for the accountability for performance from that teacher. And the first question when the performance did not improve was that the nature of the support was inadequate to the task of improvement. What this does is force this from just rote-minded teacher accountability where the teacher is to blame for the student performance and it returns it back to the organizational learning of the larger system, be it a school or be it a, 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 a school system. And the demands for accountability get turned on their head. And the demands for organizational learning turn on their head. The core work of leading the improvement of student learning is around the improvement of teacher practice, which I submit to you is only possible through the deep understanding of teacher practice. So is that about within the five minutes? That, okay. So that's it. Thank you. So we're going to open this to, to questions now. There's a microphone on both sides of the room. I'm going to use the, while people are lining up, I'm going to ask the first question. So Tony, let's say that you convinced me that in fact school principals should know something about instruction. But they also need to know about management, finance, budgets, uh, HR, uh, community relations, media relations, and the list is very long. Is it realistic to expect that one person, the way we currently and traditionally conceive of the, of the principal's role, has all of these skills? Or should we rethink the organization of leadership so that we have more differentiated roles in schools? I'm going to answer that not from a theoretical perspective, from, but from my practical perspective. Uh, because I could argue, well, let's create a, a business manager that then takes care of most of the finances so the principal can spend her time on instructional improvement. When those were not built into the structure of organizations, what good principals was to take certain time from the resources that were available and delegated those resources in a number of ways so that they could really be in the, in the classroom and do that. They ran organizations that were able to deal with most of the ordinary work without the principal having to be the, the, the key responder to the emergency. When I walked into those schools, those, those offices looked, sounded, and took care of business, community business, parent business, in ways that in weak schools, 
The principal was always called out to respond to the, the person who had a problem because the organization could never get things right. The other thing is, I think it does a disservice to teaching first, and then I, I'll answer some other of the questions. The disservice to teaching is good teaching has nothing to do with management. Extraordinary teaching where every student is being responded to and grouped and organized around the level of need where content gets adjusted to the needs of students, all moving toward common standards, having different individuals and groups doing work at different times, is a managerial, is a managerial challenge that if understood by high-level managers would be highly praised by them. That does not mean that I do not understand that the skills of principals are out of a different dimension than the skills of a teacher. I would argue that what we need is a different career ladder. It would be a career ladder where great teachers would move to leading groups of teachers, might then move to being coaches. As they were coaches, they would be working as part of the, 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 the school team and therefore learning the larger roles of the principalship. They would move to being the assistant principal, but not the assistant principal for bus schedules and the assistant principal for book ordering. That is, and then that assistant principal pool becomes the pool for principals. And that's the problem with the way the system runs now. This new career ladder would have as its core dimension instructional improvement through every role that an, uh, a, a principal, uh, that someone who would become a principal would go through so that they would learn the broader uh, uh, role of leadership in a school. Take a question over on this side. Hi. Um, I came to teaching after 20 years in industry, so my perspective is a little different. But. Uh, my experience in industry was that there was always a perception that individual contributors and managers were two very different things, um, and that individual contributors rarely made good managers. And so uh, I think one of the reasons was that they tended to continue to be involved in day-to-day -day activities in ways that they really shouldn't be as managers. And so I'm, I guess I'm just trying to understand what you were talking about in terms of working with the teachers, because it seems like the process owners themselves, the teachers, should be focused on this uh, curriculum and educational improvement that you were talking about, where the, the leader should really be focused on where the organization is going and supporting those groups of teachers to make the kinds of changes that they need to be more effective. So uh, am I, uh, I just want to get some clarification, I guess, on how the interaction worked. I mean, my, my, my picture of a principal is it should be a servant leadership sort of a model as opposed to uh, one of the other models you might pick where someone's more, more interactive, sorry. Uh, uh, 
I, I still, go, the way that I go back is, what is the problem that schools are trying to address now? And the problem is that the learning of students is insufficiently powerful and uh, uh, variably distributed among student populations. And so the core work of schools is to improve learning. And the, the core work of the leader of the schools is to improve the learning of students. That is, that is the work. The schools in which, the schools in which we have the greatest um, examples of both individual school or larger system improvement is when those leaders focus on, participate in, know the work of, support it, hold it accountable, measure it, all the things that good leaders and managers do, but being in the work. That's the evidence that, that's the evidence that I see. I don't know if I've addressed the, the way that you've answered it. Of course you can. Yeah, I'm sorry, I guess uh, Dr. Debbing's my hero, so. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, I guess what I'm worried about is that you're, <coughs> By being so involved, you're essentially letting the teachers off the hook for being responsible for the, the output of their own process. I mean, they're the process owners and the people who are supposed to make this thing happen. So by, by, inter by having people who are experts in education and teaching come into the room and tell teachers how to teach or, or to drive this thing, it seems like, the, uh, the, uh, do you see what I'm saying? I'm yeah, I see what you're saying. I, I would just say that the black box in the national strategies for improvement is we've got standards, we've got assessments, and then somehow these things are going to improve what the teachers do. And the problem is one of knowledge and skill. Teachers are working very hard with what they know, using the skills that they have, and they can generate the kinds of learning that American schools are producing. So the problem is the black box of the process. No one knows what to do with it. We, we try to drive it but, uh, 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 by looking at assessments where, where we try to talk at it. We're now trying market strategies, a whole ra But all these strategies ultimately have to get to this black box of instructional of instructional improvement in classrooms. And uh, paying attention to that process is the most important thing I think that a leader can do. And holding people accountable for that process is what leaders can do. If I might just add, <laughs> I know this isn't my role, but I can't help it. Just, uh, <laughs> I think if we were satisfied with the quality of, of instruction and the quality of learning in this country, then we wouldn't need to have leaders who were able to help and support and improve teachers' effectiveness. But for the most part, we're not satisfied with the, with the quality of instruction and the quality of learning. And so we're in a position where we're actually trying to improve what's going on in classrooms. And 
to do that, we need someone who is very knowledgeable of what effective instruction looks like. So it, once we get to that point where every teacher in every classroom is highly effective, then I don't know that we need principals to be quite as involved, although I suspect that uh, there's always room for improvement and there's always new opportunities that someone might be able to lead. But we're in a position now where we're really trying to make major improvements, and it's not happening by leaving teachers alone to use what they already know. They need new knowledge and new opportunities to learn. Sorry about that. Um, okay, over Better on the side. Um, I, I got my credential at San Francisco State. I moved to San Diego in the summer of 97, and I, uh, a few months after moving there, I got a position with San Diego City Schools. Um, and when I got there, I had, there was a bidding process in San Diego. I don't know if it's still there, but I bid for a very tough school called Mead School. Mm -hmm. And the principal at the time, I, I really admired her because I had subbed in her classroom, and I thought she was fabulous, and she did wonderful work with the children. But then when I got the position, they had because you and Burston had just gotten there and they had moved a bunch of principals. The principal that took her place was a, an entirely different person and intimidated a lot of the new teachers, ended up um, threatening a lot of us that, you know, if, if we didn't have this going on or this going on, and it really didn't even tell us, you know, basically we, I was doing something like with animal puppets where they'd sound out the letter A for alligator and they'd make an alligator and she would say, well, you know, they shouldn't be talking, doing something like that. They should just be writing about it. These were kids that had never been to preschool. Basic joy of learning things that I was trying to do in the first few weeks, as were a lot of the other young teachers. And she intimidated the parents. She intimidated the teachers. The teachers were very afraid to really ask mm -hmm. for any support because she was the administrator. And I wanted to ask you, when you have principals that aren't doing their job and intimidating teachers and not really making it a conducive learning community, where is that? How is that happening if stuff like that is still going on in schools? Uh, that's not an un, um, uncommon event in too many schools, particularly in urban areas. And it is your description of that principal's behavior is antithetical to the description and certainly the intent of my description of what a principal, what I would expect the principal to do. Uh, the good news, the good news on some levels is that there is more accountability for principals. If probably one looks at the number of principals who have been, for lack of a better term, uh, 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 discharged, okay, that number has increased. The bad news is that if you, in other words, that the accountability tool has actually been able to be wielded in a public system. The bad news is that I am not sure that overall, the knowledge and skill base of replacements overall has generally made a, a significant contribution to the field the way it is. And also, early childhood education, you know, that's such an important part of children's life and learning when you want to get them excited about education. And so many times it seemed like this principal just wanted them to be reading chapter books. And like I said, these kids were four years old, five years old, never been to preschool, had no background. So, you know, you can't just teach a child, give them a chapter book and say, here, read these read this It's chapter. very interesting because yeah. that's the perfect example of not knowing teaching. 
When you teach, you don't teach programs. You teach students. So you start with the needs of students. Absolutely. And if that person is making a recommendation not to do that, it's antithetical to everything that we're talking about. So what can teachers do then when you have an administrator that's doing that and you're kind of just stuck and you can't, what do you do? Uh, you probably have the following things. One, you can leave. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm not, two, you can, you can get together, uh, two, before you, you go where I'm going is, group of teachers actually get together and meet with the principal. That's tough to do. It's tough. But you, you get together and you say, look, uh, listen, it's not working for us. Let me tell you how the, and this is like a candid conversation of feedback. And then, you know, it's one of these things that you, uh, 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 you hope it's productive. It often is not. And you hope you don't get punished for taking that step. Okay. Given the description you gave me. Yes. And the third thing that you do is, I mean, what happens now is teachers hunker down and wait until this too shall pass. <laughs> if you're a young teacher, the rates are a 50% uh, uh, loss in uh, three to five years and in urban centers greater than 50%. And that's one reason of working conditions for which often the principal is responsible for, for, the, for a lot of that culture. And it's a problem. All right, thank you. There's a, there's a good little book. That's all right, pass it on. There's a good little book written by, uh, it's called Getting Things Done, How to Exert Lateral Leadership When In Fact You're Not in Charge. It's got some ideas. Thanks. Hi, um, I'm not a member of the profession. I'm here actually as a parent. Um, we have some of those in this community. And, and I've been fairly involved in some of the educational policy issues now, oh, since the Palo Alto Math Wars began in 93, 94. Um, but I'm, largely on the side of defending teachers and trying to be supportive. Um, I'm concerned about the, um, the way in which the current attempts at measurement and accountability interact with the goals that you've expressed, which I heartily applaud. Um, I'd just like to throw out one sentence and then ask you to respond and expand or tell me I'm just completely off base. And, and that, this is something I've been saying to leaders in the legislature and, places, and such places. And that is that if we measure the wrong things or if we mismeasure the right things or if we misinterpret the measurements, then three things happen. We make poor policy decisions, we waste money, and we hurt kids. And we really can't afford to do any of those, but the way the system is structured right now, it's conducive to doing all, it seems to me to be conducive to doing all of those, and I'd like the perspective of someone who's been in the trenches in, in a very serious way and very successfully. Thank you. Uh, too much of that is happening now. It is driven by legislation. Um, I have learned. I have learned one one thing that I think broad general measurements matter. I and therefore I think we should pay attention to them. 
I have always found that doing good improvement work improves those broad measures over time. Uh, and so I would just stick in there doing hard improvement work. Which is hard when under I the visit, pressures, I'm sorry? It's hard under the pressures that are being imposed now. It is very hard under the pressures, and that's, that's, a role, that's actually a role of leadership. To be able to a community, whether it is a community of, of a class parents, school parents, or district parents, to be able to, to say what we're doing, why we're doing it, and to make an argument that is consistent with the broad data, but is consistent with the work that you're doing about, about what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, look, I enter lots of urban classrooms in America. Lots of, for the last eight years, I just visit and I just sit in classrooms. The, the, the systems that perform most poorly, the ones that break your heart on the large data issues, when you look at the classrooms, you wonder how the students manage to perform at the level they perform that is already driving us to destruction, given what is happening in those classrooms. I'm, I, I, uh, and this is, so you have to know something about those processes. Thank you. Um, I know we have a long queue of people who would like to ask questions, but I'm afraid we've hit our time. So I'm hoping that maybe Tony will spend a few more minutes here for people to grab him with your burning question before uh, we whisk him out and, and feed him. And I think we all agree that he's deserved to be fed. So we started out, we started out, although he knows there are no Raw lunches. We, <laughs> we started out a little disappointed, but Tony, you certainly have uh, made us feel like we made a worthwhile choice of coming here this evening, even without Linda. So thank you for representing thank both you. of you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.